Good morning. <clears throat> My name is Greg. It's good to be with you today. I'm excited to, to get into John. We're in John chapter 2. I'm going to read it and then and pray, and then we'll, we'll get into the sermon. It's John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. And this seems like a, a really strange miracle period. Like that Jesus is at a party, the wine runs out, and he's going to supply more alcohol, right? Not exactly what you expect uh, in church or from our Savior. Um, and, and yet this is what he did. And, and not only is it a strange miracle, but, but it's strange that it's, it's the first miracle. And, and John thinks it's important uh, for us to see this. Um, and yet, it's, it's through this miracle that the disciples and us, as the readers of this text, we get a glimpse of the transformative power of Jesus. We see Jesus take something and, and completely transform it. And we're reminded that, that Jesus is the one. He will make everything new. Creation was, was marred. It was broken by sin. And God promises that he's going to recreate. He's going to make the new heavens and the new earth. Isaiah 65, 17 says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. So I don't know if he caught that there. He's saying, I'm going to make new heavens and new earth, and it's going to be so great that you're not even going to remember what was here before. And I don't know if that literally means like we won't remember the gorge or you won't remember Hawaii or, or whatever, but, but it is going to be so great. There's going to be like, oh, yeah, Hawaii was okay. That was kind of cool. But, man, what God has made is so much better. Let me, let me pray. Jesus, I, I thank you for your word. God, I, I just, the more I read John, the more I'm blown away at how, how Holy Spirit you you inspired John to, to write this book in all the ways that John points us to Jesus, including this first miracle. John's trying to show Jesus your glory to his readers, and I just know I'm not adequate in, in describing this text or any text, Lord. I need you. I pray that you would come, that you would show us through the eyes of John, would you show us what John saw, what he experienced and would you stir up in us belief, Lord? Could we, would we believe in you? And Jesus, would you help us in our unbelief? It's in your, it's in your name that we pray. Amen. One thing, uh, 
we got new projectors. I don't know if you noticed. Um, you guys on this side, you certainly noticed. And I think we even have a slide, right? Look how cool that is. Uh, so we, we wanted to thank uh, the people that worked hard on, on getting the projectors in here. We've got this group. We haven't mentioned them in a while, but they're called the Incredibles. It's a bunch of retired guys that they, they just make this building function to the best of its abilities, right? So they were up here with scaffolding, getting those things up, and uh, they look awesome. Ray and, uh, and Dave Miller, Dave's in the back there. They did the research on these projectors. Apparently, there's lasers, or a laser. I don't know how many lasers, but instead of a light bulb, it's a laser that's projecting this, right? And the... Uh, uh, the the resolution is 1920 by 1080, I think, right? So, like, my TV at home, I think, is 1080 by 720. So, if you don't know what that means, it just means this is way better, right? Which is not surprising that I bought a cheap TV. But um, I, remember, I, I remember the first time I saw uh, an HD TV. It was a Super Bowl party, uh, and I'd heard of HD TVs, but I hadn't seen one yet. And I was blown away at how crisp the image was. It, was, it felt like I was on the sidelines, like watching the game. And a couple of years later, like I finally bought one and, and I couldn't believe it. Like I could not believe how much better the image was. And I, I love sports, I love watching sports. Um, and and I, I love watching sports in HD. Like it's, it's unbelievable. Um, but a couple of years after I had an HD TV, I, uh, I don't remember what was going on. I, I probably couldn't watch a game. I was driving somewhere and I had to listen. And I realized how much I like listening to broadcasts of sporting events. Like, a good broadcaster can bring you right into the arena. Uh, We moved back in 2010, and uh, it was right in the middle of March Madness. We didn't have our TV yet. We didn't have have our TV service yet. Uh, My family was off doing something, and I was getting our house ready. I think we'd only been in there a couple days, and it was the night of the national championship, Duke the evil Empire Duke versus Butler. If you've never heard of them, that's because they're a nobody team. I think from Indiana, um, they're good. But, but Butler made it, the Cinderella, all the way to compete against Duke. And, and as I was working, I was listening on the radio, and I just I loved it. The commentator was amazing. He just brought me right into the arena. And I, my disdain for Duke runs deep. Um, I, uh, I have a tradition of buying the shirt of the team that knocks Duke out of the tournament every year. Um, I haven't done that the last couple of years, but, but for the most part, I do that. Uh, so I was just hoping that Butler would stay in the game, right? Like, make it close. Give me some hope that you can pull this thing off. Well, two minutes left. They're down by five points. It's 55 to 60, okay? Butler drives down. They make a bucket, and it's 57, 60 now, right? Duke comes down. They're looking awesome. They've got all the better players. They miss their shot. Butler gets the rebound. They bring it down. They score again. Right? Duke comes down, Krzyzewski, uh, um, except for when he's coaching the Olympic team, then I'm a fan. Um, so Krzyzewski, the coach, he's a legendary coach, calls a timeout, draws up a play. It looks like they're going to do you know, something awesome. Um, they're up by one point, and, and they miss, and, and uh, Butler gets the rebound. They bring the ball back down. They're trying to work it inside to Gordon Hayward, who NBA player now. He plays for the Celtics. He was on that team. They're trying to get it to him, and they can't. Duke deflects the ball out. I think there was like 13 seconds left. Duke deflects the ball out. Butler gets another shot, right? They get the ball in. They're working around. Duke's defense is just killer, and they cannot get a good shot. They end up settling for this fadeaway jumper that was pretty terrible. It rims out. 
uh, Duke center, uh, Zobek, I think is his name. He pulls down the rebound. They foul him with 3.6 seconds left, one-point lead. Zobek, he's been shooting 55.4% from the line for the season. But in the tournament, he's 7-12, right? He goes down there, knocks down that thing like it's nothing, right? Two-point lead. The most strategic thing is for him to miss so that Butler can't drop a play. They just have to go. 3.6 seconds left. He misses. Gordon Hayward gets the ball. He's flying down the court, crosses half court, shoots, right? And mind you, I'm not watching this. I'm listening, and I've stopped what I'm doing. I'm focused on my radio, and the guy's describing how the shot looks like it has a chance. It's getting closer and closer. It hits the backboard. It's going towards the hoop, and it rims out. They miss, and Duke has another stinking national championship. (laughs) And I'm somewhat miserable. At least it wasn't my team that they beat. But man, I was, I was blown away. Even though I didn't see the game, this commentator, he was there, he saw it all, and he brought me right into the arena. And that's what John does through this gospel. Right? John's, John's an eyewitness. And he's written this gospel so, so, that we, so that he would persuade us, the readers, to see what he saw, to, to believe in this Jesus, this glorious Jesus. John 1.14 it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John was there. He's given us the account of what Jesus did. He, he, he's telling us the, the things that, that Jesus taught. He's telling us how the people interacted with Jesus, the things that he saw Jesus do. He just he so badly wants us to believe. He wants us to see the glory that he saw in Jesus. So we come to chapter 2. Jesus' public ministry begins. In chapters 2 through 12, we'll see these different signs that Jesus does. And by sign, I just mean a symbol that, that reveals something about who Jesus is. He's, he's giving glimpses of his glory to the people around him. And, and like I said, it's, it's weird that he starts with, with this miracle at, at a wedding as his, as his very first miracle. I don't know about you. I, I actually love weddings. I know like as a guy, that's not normal, I don't think. Um, I didn't used to like weddings, right? When, it, when I had to go to a wedding um, before, the only thing I cared about was at the reception, is there going to be good food? Is the cake going to be good? Like that's all I cared about. But then I got married, and, and it changed everything for me, right? Like, every time I go to a wedding now, like, I love it. Because it's, 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 it's as if, like, I'm getting to celebrate, right? Be married to my wife again. But, but as a Christian, I think we have even more reason, even if you're not married, to celebrate at a wedding. Because it's a picture of our relationship with Christ. Right? Scripture uses the imagery of the marriage over and over again to remind us of what we have in Jesus, that, that Jesus has come and he's, he's made his vow to us, even though we're an unfaithful spouse. He's made this vow. He's promising. He's, he's the one that's going to make this marriage work. And it's, it is unfathomable that he would marry us. My youth pastor, I've said this before, my youth pastor in middle school, um, actually, Lindsay and I were in the same youth group growing up. So he's, he's a pastor uh, locally. I bump into him like once or twice a year. Every time I see him, one of the first things he says to me is, Greg, you married out of your league. I'm like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> I tricked Lindsay into marrying me. It worked. But I did. I married out of my league. And we look at the bride of the church, or the, the bridegroom of the church, 
Christ, man, we have married out of our league. So, so when, we, when we come to a wedding as a believer, it is such a reminder of what we have in Jesus, the faithful spouse who abundantly provides everything that we need. Let's jump into verse 1. It says, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. The mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. So Mary's there, Jesus is there, his disciples are there. Seems pretty likely that they're either related to the couple getting married, like maybe it's a niece or a nephew, or, or really close family friends. And, and the wine runs out. And we can all imagine, like, what a party faux pas, right? Like, if, if you're hosting some people over at your house for a party and you run out of something, that's embarrassing, Way more pressure if you've ever been to a wedding where they run out of something. Oh, you just, you feel for the couple. Bigger deal even back then. We're, we're told that the weddings were not just like a, a one afternoon celebration, but it's days and days. Sometimes up to a week a wedding would be celebrated. And it's the responsibility of the groom to provide for the wedding celebration. The food, the drink, the wine is a big deal in that culture. So this is huge if, if you run out of wine. Um, and especially in a small town like this, you, you can imagine a small town when something goes wrong, everybody hears about it. Commentators said that, or say that this would have followed the couple all of their lives. Like that's how big of a deal it was for them to run out of wine, which is crazy to me to imagine. It, it was even possible for them to get sued over running out of wine. Okay? Like we think we're a litigious society. Man, can you imagine getting sued because you like ran out of wine or I don't know pigs in a blanket at your wedding? Be so so crazy. So Mary Mary notices this and she's she's not a caterer, right? She she's probably a relative. She she cares deeply. She's highly empathetic and, and she wants to help out this couple. Joseph, the husband of Mary, he, he's not in the picture, and we can only assume that, uh, that Mary's a widow at this point. So Jesus, as the eldest son, he, he's had to step up and, and be the man of the house. And certainly, Mary had come to depend on Jesus for, for any number of things. So Mary sees a problem, and she comes to Jesus. And there's something that she does not know how to fix, something that she can't figure out. So, so she runs to Jesus for help. And is this your natural response? Do you come and say, Jesus, help. Help me. Or how bad does it have to get for you to come to Jesus for help? And, and for Mary, it's not, it's not like she'd seen Jesus do a miracle before. Verse 11 makes it clear. This is Jesus' first miracle. So Mary, Mary didn't come to preteen Jesus and say, hey, you need to clean up your room. And he snapped and like everything floats into its place. Right? She, hadn't, she hadn't seen something supernatural from Jesus yet. And and yet she believes, she comes to him and trusts that Jesus is able. And do we trust that, that Jesus is able? Verse 4, And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not come yet. And, and that is a strange response in multiple different parts. 
first of all, woman is is not uh, is not a normal affectionate term. Shocker, right? Uh, so some people try to argue that oh, this is just how they address their moms. Like no, they didn't go around calling mom woman. That 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 was not the norm. Um, so one commentator, John Stott, said that this term is somewhere between woman and and dear woman, right? Um, so Jesus, uh, one thing we know about Jesus as as we read about him in the Gospels is. He chooses his words on purpose, right? He, he, he said this on purpose, and John wrote it down on purpose because they want this to grab our attention. Um, we know that, that Jesus isn't being rude or disrespectful to his mom, right? That would be sin. Jesus did not sin. But on some level, there, there's, there's a rebuke going on here. Um, Jesus still loves her. There's no doubt about that. We fast forward to the cross, the end of the book of John. Jesus tells uh, the disciple John, take care, take care of Mary as if she was your own mom. So he, he still loves her, and yet he's distancing himself from his, his mom here. And he's making it clear, uh, and we'll see this as the Gospel of John goes on, he's making it clear and clear that Jesus is about the will of the Father, that he is here to do what the Father has sent him to do, and we'll talk more about that later. Um, so Mary doesn't have a special in with Jesus, right? right? If anyone should be automatically in with Jesus, it's, it's Mary. But Mary has to come to Jesus as a believer like everyone else. She has to come to Jesus to save her. Mary carried Jesus in her womb. She gave birth to him. She, she rocked him asleep. She bandaged his, his owies when he was little. If anyone would have thought they were good to go, it should have been Mary. But she needed to be saved by Jesus like everyone else. She needed Jesus to pay for her sins too. She needed to trust in his death and resurrection to bring life, to impart new spiritual life into her. The good news is that we all, just like Mary, we all need Jesus. No one's better off or worse off. No one has an advantage or a disadvantage in in coming to Jesus for salvation. You could be from the most dysfunctional home ever. Your life could be filled with terrible choice after terrible, selfish choice. And yet the good news is you stand no worse than the mother of Jesus himself. You need Jesus just like Mary needed Jesus. And Jesus says, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And there's another thing. Um, as I said earlier, Jesus, is he's, he's dialed in. He's, he's dedicated to doing the Father's will and the Father's will only. He's locked in on the cross. Jesus is going to say things in this gospel like, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. In another place he says, I seek not my will but the will of one who sent me. And I've just been asking myself, is that true of, of me like, am I dedicated, am I committed, am I locked in on glorifying God? Weeks ago, Pastor Gary asked us when he was talking about John the Baptist, he, he told us that, that like John the Baptist, if you're a follower of Christ, you're one sent by God for God's glory, that we're to view ourselves as sent ones. Um, I wanted to pull up our mission statement for Harvest. I don't know, even know how long it's been since we've looked at this as a church, but, but this, is, this is what we say that we're about. It says, Harvest Community Church exists to glorify God by making disciples for Jesus Christ from all peoples through gospel-centered mission, growth, and community. And if you're like me, 
most of the time when I hear a mission statement from an organization, it, it's like Charlie Brown, the wah, 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 wah. Like I, it's just noise to me. I, I, don't, I don't care normally. But this, this is what we're aiming for as a church. We, we want to glorify God by making disciples. And in everything we do, we want it to be centered on the gospel. So what are you focused on? Like what are you focused on right now? Are you focused on getting to that next season of life? Maybe that's the next career move. Maybe that's finding a spouse. Or, or, or maybe it's a purchase that, that you, you can't wait to make. Or building for your retirement. And, and none of these things are wrong in and of themselves, certainly. And yet, that's not what our aim is to be as Christians. We, we'd be absolutely foolish to live for those things when, when they're going to be over like that compared to eternity. Jesus is focused on glorifying the Father. He knew that his hour, and it says when his hour, there's no debate about what this is talking about. This is talking about the cross. This is talking about the, his death and his resurrection. So he knew that his, his hour had not come yet. He knew what the prophets wrote uh, about him, about the time when, when wine would flow. I, Isaiah 25, 6, there's this, this imagery of, of a feast celebrating a wedding, and, and it's, 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 uh, it's of the Messiah, right? The, Christ and his bride, um, where, where the wine, the good wine, will flow freely. There will be celebration. So when Jesus says that his hour has not come yet, he's right. The hour of, of, of great wine and his glorification has not arrived yet. So he says, what does this have to do with me? What does this have to do with you? And verse 5 cracks me up. I don't know if you'll see this as funny. But to me, clearly, if I was in that situation, I'd go, okay, he's not going to do it. This is what Mary says. Verse 5, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you, right? Like she just, she knows. She knows somehow she's expecting that Jesus is, is going to come through. Like she expects that he will intervene. And, and all week I've been convicted. Like, man, do I, do I expect that Jesus is going to intervene in, in this thing in, in my life, in these people that I've been praying for for years? And maybe for you it's a, a family member that, that you so badly want them to know and trust Jesus, or, or a coworker or a neighbor that you've just been trying, you've been trying to share the gospel, um, and, and you, you know that Jesus has transformed you, but, but do, you, do you expect that he'll do that in the life of someone else, that, that he'll impart this new spiritual life? Or, or have you given up real hope that, that Jesus would transform you at all? Like sometimes we, we feel stuck. Sometimes we feel like our sin, that there's no hope, that, that, that we're just stuck in this thing and we're going to deal with it the rest of our lives. Do you pray like you've given up? Right? Are, you, are you praying faithless, dry, little shriveled up prayers? Or, or, or do you hold back from God? I think we've all done this. Hold back from asking God because we don't want to be disappointed if he doesn't answer it the way that we want him to. Mary has no idea how Jesus is going to do this, but she believes that Jesus will step in, that Jesus will provide what the bridegroom of this wedding could not provide. Verse 6, Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. So Mary's reaction to me is funny. That he says, what does this have to do with me? And she, she says, do whatever he says. But Jesus' reaction is kind of confusing. Like, why does he step in here now? It looks like he's saying, I'm not going to do this. And yet he does. Jesus is pointing ahead to the cross. 
He says that the time for his hour has not come, but here's a sign. Here's a sign that, that points to that, that through the cross, the bridegroom will supply the best wine, and the wine will be a reason for celebration. Uh, some people have called this first sign a, a lived out and acted out parable, that, that Jesus is, is acting out a parable before them. These purification jars, John tells us on purpose what these jars are. He could have just said six water jars, but he says that, that these are purification jars for the, the Jewish ritual purification. So for, for cleansing utensils, uh, for, for washing their hands in. So John's saying to us, hey, don't just see the miracle. It's awesome that Jesus takes this water and transforms it into wine. But see also everything that this miracle points towards. Right? Jesus takes this object that has to do with, with ritual purification for the Jews, something that has to be done over and over and over again, an old means of grace, and yet he's going to replace it with new grace himself. Replacement that will be way better. You might remember in, in 116, it says, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Right? Grace that Jesus replaces with with new grace in him, and it's, it's way better. So Jesus is going to transform water, and it's water that you wouldn't want to drink. If someone said, hey, you want to drink from the Jewish ritual purification jar? No. I don't want to, I wouldn't drink out of like a sink that someone washes their hands and like, that's gross, and John doesn't want us to miss. Like, it's not that Jesus is just changing water into wine, but he's, he's taking this old thing and making it new. And this is what Jesus does. He cleanses, he purifies, he makes all things new. He brings life to the sinner, he transforms. First John 1, 7 says, And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses or, or purifies us from all sin. If you know Jesus, do you remember who you were, what you were like before he gave you new life? I've been thinking about that the last couple of days. Like remembering back before, before I actually trusted Jesus, what I was like. I, I thought that I knew what I was doing. I, I thought that I knew how I was living. I was, I was making life work. And, and yet I came to realize by God's grace that it wasn't working. That it was just dead end after dead end. For a while I didn't even know though that I was on a dead end street. And then for me, it was through the cross, like realizing, coming to grips that, that Jesus willingly endured the cross for me, to forgive me of my sin. That's what opened my eyes to who, who God is. And, and, and once I saw Jesus, the only option that made sense was following him. And I told you a while ago that I've just been asking people that I know that know Jesus, like, tell me your story. How do you meet Jesus? And it's been so fun. I think it's been like maybe five or six months of just really trying to ask people if I don't know their story. Like, I just, I want to know, how do you come to know Jesus? And, and over and over again, I mean, different stories, but, but each time it's, there was this life before Jesus, and then Jesus entered in and brought in new life. He transformed me. He changed me. And the Bible tells us that, that God continues to do that. It's not just it's salvation, but he's continuing to make us more and more into the image of Jesus. He doesn't leave us stuck where we are. Our Savior's continuing to make us more and more like Christ. This is what we see Jesus doing. He, he replaces the old and he gives us grace in himself. He's the one that purifies us. Verse 8 
And he said to them, now draw some water out and take it to the master of the feast. He's talking to the servants here, right? He says, take this water from, from the, the Jewish ritual purification gar, jars and give that to your boss. Have him drink it. We don't know anything. I'd be scared. We, it doesn't tell us anything. Verse 9. Uh, when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. He said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. When the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This is the way everybody does it, right? If this was if this was your wedding, if this is my wedding, this is how we do it. We all want people to think of us as better than we really are. And some of us are subtle about it. Some of us aren't so subtle. But that's what we want, right? If this is your wedding, you're serving the wine, you're going to make sure the people see the label, right, that this is good stuff or hear how much it costs. And then you're watching, you're looking, and you're like, yep, they can't tell anymore. Get the box wine out. Let's save that stuff for later, right? Like this, this is how it happens. This is what the master says. And the groom, he doesn't know what happened. Like, like we're told here, the disciples knew, the servants knew. The groom doesn't know. He's, he's probably dumbfounded. He's confused. If he even knew that they were running out of wine, I'm sure he's relieved that he's been saved from this embarrassment. Man, I relate to him here. Like, I think every husband, just imagine how ticked off your brand new bride would be if this happened to you, right? Like, oh my goodness, what Jesus saved him from. This big, this big. So the groom gets credit for something amazing that he didn't do at all. In fact, what he did came up so short, and yet Jesus made it as if it didn't happen. He gets the good that Jesus brought about. And it sounds familiar. Because in Christ, the righteousness of God is, 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 is given to us. It's credited to our account. Right? I'm a sinner, and yet when I come, when I place my trust in Jesus, when I believe in his death and the resurrection, he makes a transfer to my account. He doesn't just pay my debt, but I get all of his credit as well. Right? It's as if I'm the one that lived a righteous, sinless life. Why did Jesus do this miracle? It's certainly... Certainly to glorify God, to point to the cross. We're going to see here in verse 11, it grew belief in the disciples. We also see, though, that, that Jesus graciously helped someone that was in desperate need. Whether this groom knew it or not, he, he was in need. And Jesus came and he took away his shame, took away his guilt. And this, is who, this is who Jesus is, full of compassion, it's gracious, loving, I wonder if, if you're in desperate need and you wonder if Jesus would transform you. Like, like would Jesus come into your life? Would he, would he impart this spiritual life that maybe you didn't even know you needed it until today? Well, Jesus wants you to believe. He wants you to trust in him, and he is faithful. Verse 11 says this, The first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And the result was his disciples believed in him. So Jesus shows the disciples more of his glory, and, and the result was they believed. They got a clearer picture of how truly glorious Jesus is. He, he didn't let everyone in on what happened. It was just the disciples, Mary, the, the servants that knew what he did. Um, and it's probably because, like he said, his, his hour had not come yet, right? It wasn't time for him to go public yet. But he, he gives this picture 
to them, and, and, and John gives it to us, of, of the one who has the power to transform, the one, the one who brings life, who makes all things new, the one that, that everyone needs to believe in for eternal life. So for, for several weeks now, I think all throughout John, um, each week Gary and I have been giving, the, we've been calling it, I think, the main point. Um, and, and that's, that's uh, the main point drawn out of the passage. Like the, I talked about exegesis a few weeks ago, right? Looking at the passage and drawing out from there. Um, so we're, we're shifting that. We're, we're going to call this uh, the, the, the truth, basically the truth that we want you to walk away with. From, from the passage, and if, if you need an explanation of what I mean between the two, um, I can tell you that later. But So uh, here's what we have for, for this week. Jesus reveals his glory as the one who, who begins the new creation so that you may believe in him for eternal life. Right? Jesus gives a, a picture. He, he, he shows some of his glory. He reveals that he's the one that's bringing about new creation. Revelation talks, uh, God says, I, I will make all things, I'm making all things new. And why? Because he wants you to believe in him, because he's the only way to eternal life. And we know that, that Jesus' blood is, is symbolized by wine. John 6.55, Jesus says, my, true, my blood is true drink. John 6.53, he says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. The blood to us as Christians, is everything. And of course, Jesus would take the opportunity to point to his, his, bu- his blood abundantly flowing for us on the cross, that his blood w- would be the purifier that we so desperately need, that because of his blood, we can be his bride, that our bridegroom will make every provision we need, that, that someday all that have put their trust in Jesus will celebrate at this great feast that, that we will drink this, this best wine with Jesus that he has provided because he is the one that can transform us. So we're going to celebrate Jesus' death and his resurrection through communion. Um, we'll, we'll have the band come up here in a little bit. We'll sing uh, some songs together. And anytime you can come up and, and receive the bread and the cup and then take it back to your seat. And I encourage you, don't, don't just... Don't just wolf it down really quickly. Take your time. Thank God for what he's done. You can do this by yourself. You can do this with the people around you, friends, family, whatever. But, but let, let's not blow through this. We want to celebrate what Jesus has, has done for us and given up his body and in, in, in shedding his blood for us. And this is something that's for Christians. If you know Jesus, this meal is for you. He's told us to do this over and over again in, in remembrance. If you're not a Christian, you want Jesus to transform you. Or if you have questions, we're going to have some people from our prayer team up here. We'd love to talk with you about that. We'd love to pray with you. I found a prayer um, that's, that's focused on Jesus as the bridegroom. And, and it's, uh, it's, it's based off of Isaiah 62.5 and Revelation 19.6-7. So I'll, I'll read those, uh, those two passages and, and then I'm going to pray this prayer for us. Uh, Isaiah 62.5, as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. Revelation 19.6-7, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Let me read this prayer as our closing prayer. Dear Lord Jesus, today as every day, I need the gospel. 
I need the power of the gospel even to believe in the gospel. Sometimes the good news seems just too good to be true. And many times my heart gets distracted, dulled, or divided. So I pray for grasping power today. Power to lay hold of the multidimensional love that is ours in you. A love that surpasses knowledge, but never diminishes through eternity. Lord Jesus, you are the quintessential bridegroom who greatly rejoices in us and over us, your bride. You're not just committed to us. You're not just faithful to us. You're not just a great provider. You actually love and enjoy us. You're glad to be married to us. You have no doubts or regrets. You haven't discovered something recently that makes you wonder what you were thinking when you chose us. You're not bored with us. You're never just infatuated with us. You don't look longingly at some other spouse and think, if only. If your great affection for us wasn't written down so clearly in your word, I'd never believe it was true or even possible. Continue to free me from my unbelief and underbelief. As I meditate on John's startling vision of our wedding day, I totally understand the thunderous sounds of heaven extolling the wonder of it all. Where can a greater reason for unfettered rejoicing be found? What other hope could possibly generate such unabated gladness? Come, Holy Spirit, come and stun my heart afresh with this good and true news. Renew, refresh, restore to me and all my friends here the joy of this glorious salvation. Lord Jesus, we're ready for the day for only one reason. You lived and died to make us yours. We no longer wear garments of our unrighteousness or our self-righteousness. We're dressed in wedding garments of your grace, your perfect righteousness freely given to us because of your costly sacrifice for us. This is our only hope and our only boast. May your marriage to us and great love for us profoundly alter and affect every other relationship in which you've placed us. Free us for loving others as you love us when it's easy and when loving is the last thing on our mind and our hearts. Amen, I pray in your glorious, loving name. I'm going to invite the guys up that are going to help serve communion. We'll sing some songs.